Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Adam Reeks, and it's time to meet our guests. So welcome to the Herd Mentality. On the line from another country, I have at Joshua Dammit. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you today? Very well, thanks. Now, did I get your handle right? You did. I recently changed it. I am now at Joshua Dammit. For those who uh, struggle with my pronunciation of things, D-A-M-N, Finelli, I-T. And uh, you're a world-famous author as well. What's your blog <laughs> post, just for those playing along at home? That one is currently located at joshuadammit.wordpress.com. Okay, and that's had a huge amount of feedback, hasn't it? It really has. This week has really... Uh, it's, it's actually doubled just in the last week, which is really... Incredible. So what's the synopsis of it, just briefly? Well, there was no kind of outline for the entire blog, but I just recently decided to focus more in on some of the more sensitive topics that I always thought were maybe a little too taboo to be able to speak of out loud, uh, specifically my military experience. And then most in my most recent blog post, my experiences with uh, major depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. You talk pretty openly about that. I do. I do. Now I do. <laughs> it's a really good thing. There's certainly does make a an impact when others have the nuts to stand up and say, "Hey, this this affects me." You would have had a few people contact you. Uh, I've had uh, quite a bit of feedback on it uh, lately. A lot of uh, very personal messages and a lot of uh, kind of testimonies. I would I would categorize them, and they've been very very touching. And I see that a lot of people are. Are, are feeling a, a similar type thing. It's just not something that's generally spoken of aloud. Give me a bit more about your background. You're ex-military, aren't you? I am. I was in the United States Air Force, and I did deploy. Uh, I did combat tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as other tours in Kyrgyzstan and Saudi Arabia. Golly gosh, been all over the place. Imagine you've got some stories. I do, and I'm, gonna, I'm trying to uh, work them into the blog as well. Were you an atheist when you were on tour? I was. I did not openly, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, profess my atheism, but on my dog tags, for example, it, if you, I still have them today, it says no religious preference, which was the closest thing to atheist that they allowed at the time I was active duty. And, uh, I was a, I was definitely a non-believer, but I wasn't as outspoken about it then as I am now. It was actually my tours of duty that made me become more outspoken. There are disadvantages to being an atheist in the military. There are. Uh, luckily, the Air Force is actually very keen on leading the way in terms of uh, being generally one of the more progressive branches of the service. Uh, recently, they've started offering a secular humanist uh, chaplain program, or a chapel program, not a chaplain program, but a chapel program at the United States Air Force Academy. And then also they've allowed uh, trainees to opt out of the part of the oath of enlistment, which includes uh, So Help Me God. Right. So what really was the focal point that helped you decide to challenge further and harder on the atheism front? What I saw in specifically in Iraq uh, was the impact of what religion can do on a society when it's unchecked, because that was what was completely fueling these areas. There are a lot of other issues that are are fueling the unrest in the area, a lot of uh, wealth disparity, 
uh, you're dealing with some extremely wealthy people and a whole lot of extremely poor people. You're having difficulty with education. You're having difficulty with food, water, opportunities for the future, just no jobs for a growing youth population. And then when you go ahead and you take a religion that is, according to the fundamentals of it, inherently extremist, uh, that's just uh, a recipe for disaster. So what's the resolution over there? How can how can things improve? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, I think uh, one of the biggest things is going to be the empowerment of women in the region because in terms of the, the, the largest segregations within society, because there are differences within uh, sectarian violence and and different ethnic strife across the area. But the one thing that covers pretty much the entire Middle East is the fact that women are just systematically subjugated. And so you've got an entire uh, full 50% of the population who doesn't have the same rights and the same abilities as the rest of the population. And they don't have the same capacity to contribute to society on a financial level. Exactly. And so you've got uh, the ideas that are never allowed to come to fruition. You've got you know work that is just left completely undone because people are not allowed to just basically have the exact same rights as other human beings. Women are smarter with money, there's no doubt. And the research that I've read that some charities have been founded on, and, and a good example of that is Kiva, mm-hmm. K-I-V-A dot org for anyone who'd like to check it out. How that works is you can effectively pick a country or a culture or or an aspect that you'd like to contribute a microloan to. And for $25, see, that they can buy somebody enough to set up their field. They can begin contributing once again, perhaps after a drought or whatever. You get updates on what the microloan's been able to do for somebody, and then when they've been able to repay that, that money comes back to you. It's a really good way of lifting a population out of poverty, and it can be done with women. Yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity. Yes, and I, I know Hitchens... Uh, spoke at length about this. He was a big proponent of women's rights. Oh, yes. And he was, he was on that front. He was just completely dead on. I mean, this is something that is just, it's, it's simple basic uh, economics. When you take an entire half of the population and you cut them out of uh, the entire structure, that's not good for the, the system itself. Indeed not. So what happened to you after you came back from one of these tours? After it was, it was really after Iraq that I started having difficulty. And it was actually my wife at the time, now my ex-wife. She said she noticed immediately when I got off the plane that I was different. It started manifesting itself in, at first in anger that I, I was never really an angry person before I went. But then when I got back, I would, I would become very angry very easily. And then I would respond in an inappropriate manner. And that was completely out of character. And I started having difficulty, um, just relaxing. I started having, having difficulty concentrating words uh, on a page, for example, I would be able to uh, to be reading and get to the end of a page and have absolutely no clue what I had just read, which was completely uh, not normal for me. I Normally, I, I would read a book a week before that, and then coming back, I would struggle just to get through a chapter. So it must have been a huge challenge then in order to, to create some content, right, put some pen to paper. And that was actually something I, I kind of uh, discussed a little bit today with talking with a couple of people on Twitter was that it was actually books that they, they first let me know I was having a problem because they were showing that something was just not right in my brain. But they were also eventually a part of my therapy in that they really helped kind of rewire my thinking in a way that other things didn't do. So I would challenge myself to read different 
different types of material. And they just, they started, it was basically a workout for my brain again. It was, it was just like any kind of, um, you know, physical therapy, but it was for my brain. I think that's a very clever strategy. It got a bit more deep than that, didn't it? There was more that happened, and you elaborated a bit on that in your blog. Yes, absolutely. As as time went on, it actually took about a year after I got back to where um, I hit a wall. I had, in secret, become a cutter, which is a type of self-harm, somebody who just uh, cuts uh, their own flesh. And I would do this in a way that just... I would make it to where it would be in places that it wasn't able to be seen in uniform because I was still active duty at the time. And uh, absolutely nobody knew about it. Even my wife didn't know about it. If uh, a wound was discovered on me because of the nature of my job, I was able to kind of just uh, talk my way out of it because I had a very physical job. And it wouldn't be uncommon for me to come home bleeding. But it just... it it kept progressing and progressing. And I also started having uh, suicidal ideation around this time. And that's when I actually started uh, formulating a plan, going through rehearsal. And again, I never told anyone any of it at all, even my wife at the time. When did you decide to seek out some help? That was uh, March 15th, 2007. And I actually made the decision that morning that that was going to be my last day alive. And I was completely calm about that. And I... Decided to go home one last time. I had gotten off of work early that morning. And that was when I went upstairs and I found my my wife still asleep in bed. And I had realized that that meant that day she was going to wake up a widow. And that was our fifth wedding anniversary at the time. I'm not sure why, but that flipped the switch for me. And instead, I, I got back in the car and I drove myself to the base hospital and I went to go speak to a psychologist at, at that time. And then it was, I was kind of dragging my feet. I was still masking my symptoms. I was still uh, not too keen to talk about just exactly what I was thinking and what I was feeling and what I was doing. Uh, but I was, I was still reaching out for help at that time. And how long did the process take before you really fully engaged with it? Uh, it took, uh, actually what it would, quite honestly, what it took was uh, having the choice taken away from me because what had happened was I was the psychologist I was seeing at the time was comfortable keeping it between two of us. Uh, he didn't he didn't know about the self harm at the time and he didn't know. You know I, I had let on that I was depressed, but I hadn't let on that I was fully suicidal yet. And it was actually when I was at work and addressing a wound that was quite obviously self inflicted. Uh, and my station captain caught me. And at that point, there, there were no stories to tell. There was no anything. It was, it was, it was all out in the open. So the process began then from my very first inpatient, uh, psychiatric, uh, visit. And I actually ended up being sent to a civilian hospital in the middle of Texas that was not equipped in any way to deal with anyone with combat-related post-traumatic stress disorder. And I did not have a diagnosis at the time. So that began the first of four inpatient psychiatric visits. They took place over a number of years or months or weeks? Um, that The four were over the period of roughly a year. Uh, the, the longest I was inpatient was uh, about two weeks at, at one of the hospitals. They were all right around between one and two weeks that I, I stayed in these locations. But one thing that was very clear 
uh, when I got to the first place because it was a civilian hospital and it was and it was not equipped to deal with my type of of issue. It really kind of showed me how how deep this problem went. And then I, the next hospital I got sent to was a military hospital. And even when I got there and I finally got a clear cut diagnosis that yes, you have combat related post traumatic stress disorder and major depression, but they had absolutely nothing to tell me other than that. For every other condition that any other patient was there for, they had books, they had pamphlets, they had videos that they could watch. When it came to the guy who came back from Iraq and had post-traumatic stress disorder, they had nothing. And it was actually the nurses there who decided to go home and do research on their own and try to find some material to bring into me. And what they, what they brought me actually was videos that were testimony of the survivors of sexual assault. And that was the first time in this process that as they started to talk about the things that they were thinking and the things that they were feeling, that the light bulb went off and I realized I'm not crazy. This is a real thing. You're not alone. Exactly. I think that's wonderful that the nurses took it upon themselves to investigate as far as they could because their resources were limited. And they actually did that at great risk to themselves because they were not supposed to uh, kind of deviate from the program. I mean, as you could imagine, being in an inpatient psychiatric facility is regimented enough. Now go ahead and do that in a military hospital. That's going to be really, really strict. So was that the most beneficial thing that happened to you? Was that a major turning point? That was one of many uh, turning points. It, it takes quite a bit uh, to to fully get back on track. I guess I you know I'm I'm still very open about the fact that I am still on the road to recovery. I wouldn't go so far as to say everything's great, but I also uh, I know how far I've come because one thing I started to do immediately when I went into the hospital was I started to journal. And I would write down absolutely every detail of what happened every day. I would write down what I thought. I would write down what medication they gave me and how much. I would write down what I felt like before and after the medication. Now, I'm able to go and grab those books and open them up and look, uh, look backwards five years and say, yeah, I've, I've definitely come very far from when I was, when I was in that place. And it helps helps me gain perspective that way. Now, with the blog, what I'm trying to do is I'm going to try and do that in a more public way so that other people can see that they are not alone in thinking these things and feeling these things. Do you want to throw in the link to the blog post again? Yes, it is at joshuadammit.wordpress.com. You're not alone. There's been a few people who have contacted you, con- or you're, you're looking to contribute to some other sites as well, aren't you? Yes, um, I'm going to be, actually, this week I'm writing a piece for Martin S. Pribble on the appropriately titled Not Alone Project that he has recently launched, which is excellent and everyone should check out. Um, I'm actually going to be writing a follow-up piece to the the actual blog post that got the most attention this week, which was called Silence Echoes, and it's going to try to address... A lot of the questions or a lot of the comments that I received following the initial post, but it's also going to go further into um, 
some of the more finer details of actually what happens when a person asks for help and what they can expect, what people can do, what people probably shouldn't do, uh, uh, things along those lines. You often tweet about suicide prevention resources for people in different areas. Yes, I do. And um, if anybody follows me on Twitter, at Joshua Dammit, um, generally every evening I at least tweet the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline information, which uh, their handle is actually all numbers, and it's at... Eight zero zero two seven three eight two five five, and I think it's a good thing that you keep tweeting about this sort of stuff, and it's certainly far more beneficial than the stuff I tweet about. Usually, my tweets are along the lines of "Hi Ray" to Ray Comfort. Well, I, I, I definitely do my fair share of that. The overall tone of my Twitter feed is is very light, and I'm definitely there for laughs, and I'm there to have fun, and I'm and I'm there to, to, to poke fun at a lot of things. But one thing I had noticed definitely over the years is that nighttime is a lot worse for me, and I suspect it's a lot worse for a lot of other people who are dealing with similar circumstances. So that's why generally towards the time people in, in my part of the world are going to bed, that's when I start to tweet, you know, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline and, uh, and those kinds of resources. And it's... There's no in fact, shame the, uh, getting involved with that. There, there, there is no stigma. No, not it's at all. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for you to reach out and communicate. And the, right. these guys all do it in confidence it, too. Absolutely. It's, it's completely confidential. One of the big reasons why I specifically uh, talk about the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which their handle on Twitter is at 800-273-TALK. And that's also their phone number in North America. And their website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Um, if you get in contact with them, there are many different ways you can do this. You can obviously call them. And this is one thing I do recommend for people, not just if you're suicidal, but if you're dealing with someone who is suicidal. Because I get I get these questions a lot. Uh, there's someone in my life I'm concerned about. What do I do? You don't have to be the person who is in crisis to call a crisis number. You can call them for resources. And you can also go to their website. They have a lot of articles. Uh, I, I tend to retweet some of their articles during the day. I do try to read the article beforehand to make sure that it's completely appropriate and I send it out. But also on their website, if you go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org, there is a an actual chat feature on the website. So even if it's difficult to say the words out loud to another person, you can at least type them. And so that sometimes that's all a person needs is to be able to see the words in front of them to realize that either they're going to be okay and they're able to process it, or that, yes, indeed, they do need to take that next step and get some actual help that they haven't gotten before. Look, I think it's a really good thing that uh, the resources are so freely available. It would be a really tough gig being on the other end of that line. It, it definitely would. And they they do have certain areas that specialize for certain people on these lifelines. For instance, with the main suicide prevention lifeline, which is at 1-800-273-8255, if you're a veteran, you hit one and you will get put in contact with people who are specifically trained to deal with veterans' issues. They also have another section that's specifically for young adults. And then there's another program that I've just recently uh, started to help spread some of their information around, which is called the Trevor Project. They specialize in crisis intervention and suicide prevention, 
for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning youth. That's a really vulnerable time to be questioning stuff. It is. The information's there. There's people who are prepared to listen. And if you're not ready to go and speak to them, speak to somebody else. Right. And the Trevor the Trevor Project, if anyone is interested in following them, they are on Twitter at Trevor Project. And then their website is thetrevorproject.org. And their phone number is area code 866 488 community service announcement provided by at Joshua Dammit. Yes, absolutely. It's beneficial stuff, <laughs> thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? The biggest thing I need to get across to anyone who's dealing with any anything like this or has anyone in their life who's dealing with anything like this is know that you're not alone. Because that's one th- way that these uh, these conditions tend to manifest themselves is it, it makes the person feeling it feel like they're the only person who has ever felt this way ever, and you're just not. And especially when you compound that with an environment like the military where you're supposed to just get over it, you're supposed to just press on, sometimes you just can't. And one of the best ways I've heard it put in therapy is that um, uh, PTSD is a normal response to trauma in the same way that bleeding is a normal response to being stabbed. You know, this is something that there's no shame about it. It's not a weakness. It's just something that you do actually need to get help for. So, guys, listen back to this two or three times. Remember those numbers. Remember those Twitter handles and spread the word. So, Joshua, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And undoubtedly, I'll speak to you on Twitter. Looking forward to it. Alright, Thrill Seekers, on the line I have the ever-popular at Religious Tea, and I suggest you give him a follow on the Twitter sphere. Religious Tea, welcome back from the dead. It's a pleasure to be here, alive. And how... And, and, and alive. That's the important point. How does it feel to have escaped alive? <laughs> Genuinely. Of course, I always, I knew I was going to. I don't want to ruin the, I don't want to do any spoilers. I knew I was going to survive. Well, um, I've read the script. <laughs> last, I just lost day. five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the, so, um, on the last day, I got a, a call at work saying that, um, we've, we've got a few sites where I work and, uh, got a call saying we've got a couple of people here who, uh, who've read, who've read a bit of your blog and they're, um, they're they're not leaving until you talk to them. So, <laughs> okay. Good. Right. They were at reception and they, they'd stayed there for 30 minutes already. And um, they called and they just said, um, we've got something for you. Um, could we come and meet you? And I'm not going to do a Middle Eastern accent. That would be, uh, be inappropriate. <laughs> well, but, uh, I'm happy to step up. What do you need me to say? Just say, uh, we've got something for you and uh, would like to meet you if possible. You little man, <laughs> come down to front desk, have box, open box. Oh, this has to be racist. Allah Akbar, this Oh, this has to be wrong. <laughs> yes, it's somewhat wrong. I'll probably edit that out because you know I don't want to be accused of casual racism. No, you're 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 betting that your your listenership will only be white and middle class there. I think. <laughs> okay, well, look, the, the really short story for those of you playing along at home is that religious tourists does a different religion every month. And this last religion was... It was Islam. 
It was Islam. Okay, so what was involved in that? Well, it was um, Ramadan. So the, the main the main headlines were I wouldn't, wasn't allowed to eat or drink during uh, daylight hours. And the great fun about this particular time of year is uh, there's a lot of daylight hours, um, 16 and a half mainly. So we involved waking up around 4.30 in the morning, eating porridge like some crude um, Charles Dickens character, <laughs> crying into porridge <laughs> until... No, Please, that sir, the last may meal. I have some sugar? <laughs> just, just soul-destroying. I've got to say, no, I'm very impressed with the fact that you actually got idea. up and adhered to these rules, because it'd be so easy to not. It would, no one would know. That's, that's what people think about it. I, 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 could, I could be lying right now. I'm not. I'm really hmm. not. But I, I could make anything up. Hmm. I know um, I've got the CSI um, voice detector running on my laptop at the moment. In fact, I do this with all the guests who come on the show just to test the veracity of the, the nonsense they speak. Yeah, I'm just keeping an eye on you. You seem to be legit. That's that's part of the new Mac update, wasn't it? Uh, so, what's your Mac? <laughs> is you that, definitely use a Mac. Is that, the, is that the one that you can't do anything with? <laughs> that's the one, yeah. The one that's just slightly different from the things that you used to. Yeah, and, uh, but much yeah. prettier. <laughs> Much prettier. Anyway, we're not talking about Max, we're talking about Ramadan. And so all all of these people (laughs) rocked into your office and had some sort of non-ticking device to give you, I presume. Well... It's fun to pretend that, oh, something's gonna be, something bad's gonna happen here. Of course, I knew it wasn't. I mean, I, I live in, I live in Derbyshire with, uh, with peak districts and hills and greenery and stuff like that. Nothing interesting happens here. But it was fun to, fun to think that this could be it. I mean, I'm, I'm a new Salmon Rushdie. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously just better at writing than him. Um, <laughs> And they, I kind of got to reception. I thought I'll meet at reception. The security there, it's, it's, it's the safer place. And the, the two, and they, they didn't introduce themselves by name to start with, and uh, they just kind of smiled at me. And I was so, what oh, can I do worst. for you? <laughs> just this is the worst. <laughs> I said, what can I do for you? And they went, oh, one second. And then he turned around and got something out of his backpack. And I was thinking, this is this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't right. <laughs> but um, he, it was lovely. He got me a book and uh, he said it was, as far as he was concerned, the most up-to-date um, philosophical musings on um, Islam's and its, is, Islam and its teachings. And um, he gave me their phone numbers and said, if, read it, go through it. We'll love to talk you through it as well from from our perspective. And they wish me luck on the journey. We shook hands. And yeah, two two new friends. Two new friends. That sounds awesome. And you know what? That's what being a human being is all about, isn't it? It is, isn't it? The, everyone I spoke to in, um, during this month has been just kind of very different from, from the Christian people who there's always an undercurrent of, I really want you to believe this with me. I really want you, you need to ratify my belief, please vindicate everything I've been doing. I, I, they wanted to just speak about theology straight away and, um, you know, the, the arguments for and against God. And they wanted to hear my perspective as much as they give their own. I mean, none of us left with any different, different ideas on the universe and stuff, but fresh, fresh, fresh air. They were, they were, you know, they, they had conviction in what they were saying. They didn't need, they didn't need me to, um, vindicate that at all. So. That's super cool. That's super cool. So tell me, what was the hardest thing that you encountered in this month as a Muslim? Praying's tricky. Cause you gotta do it five times a day, don't five you? Five times a day, yeah. And the, the, the hardest thing, all, all my friends are, I'm really, I'm not very culturally my uh, social surroundings. So they're all white middle class atheist people who wouldn't pray at all. And the hardest thing I found was, praying near them I, I actually couldn't do it the days that i spent with um friends i i couldn't do it i felt like it, it felt like um there was there's a weird story i had when i was at university one of our lecturers saying a friend of his who was a lecturer was a heroin addict um but he was a, a lecturer and a, an academic and a professional and there was times that they'll be in meetings and they'll just say um excuse me a minute and it'll go and it'll just go to do a little bit of heroin 
And it felt almost like that, that I was just having to say to everyone, um, excuse me a moment, um, I'll be back in a minute and just wander away. And did the, you the come first... back with a dizzying high? Oh, I came back just thinking, oh, I don't know what I've just said. So <laughs> you did... Will that help? So, realistic... Uh, okay, in your opinion, how did you feel? Was it more of a meditative experience, or did you did you feel that something changed after having prayed? I mean, you certainly had a lot of time to do it. And a prayer... And yeah. a prayer, just let's, let's really cut down to the nitty-gritty here. You have to take half an hour before you pray to wash your hands and your feet. And at times I was in a mosque. I never saw anyone take half an hour. It was a quick, um, a quick rinse. So yeah, I did a bit of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that. encouraging. Yeah, at um, at the place where I work, I work in a in a college, and, um, and we, <laughs> so, we've got the webcam on at the moment. I can I can uh, see have, you have probably the cleanest toes I think I've ever seen because I'm seeing quite <laughs> a lot of gear here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank oh, you for yeah, that. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'll, look, I call it as I see it. If if somebody's got spectacularly bacterial-free foot digits, then <laughs> yeah, you got to give credit where credit's due. And you weren't so complimentary about my uh, genitals, but <laughs> <laughs> if you bothered to wash them once in a while, you Yorkshire uh. folk, I know how you roll. Oh, in the mud with no pants on. <laughs> <laughs> but the, in the in the college where I work, and we had to pull we had to pull an email out to all the students who were. Uh, it's quite a multi- uh, multicultural um, college. There's a lot of uh, a, a lot of pe- people of the uh, of the Islamic faith, and we had to tell them to stop going in the disabled toilet and washing their feet in the toilet <laughs> because uh, there was no actual place they couldn't reach their feet into the sink. I just thought that would do, so they'll put their feet in and just set it on flush. I I think that's. <laughs> it's paradoxical That's, washing your feet with it's toilet water. Cultural. <laughs> it's pretty cultural. I mean, it's really. When weird. I went overseas, I was taught one thing. They said, "This is the the piece of advice that'll save you. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different." Now, I've encountered toilets. <laughs> <laughs> in quite a lot of countries. In fact, when I first went to France, there was a toilet there that, well, let's just say I used it. And then I thought it was the, the little boy's toilet next to the toilet that you could sit down in. Turns out you're uh, not meant to wee yeah. in the bidet. No. I have no idea what a bidet no. is. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly yeah. hard. We can't work out the, the bidet thing either. And we're, we're technically classed as European. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, on the on the first day of prayer, not I was at work and I didn't want to do it in front of anyone. And we've got a prayer room um, where people go and pray, but I literally couldn't do it lest anyone saw what I was doing. So I went and locked myself in the disabled toilet and did it there oh, for like five or ten minutes. And did, did you? And the, the what, other good thing about that is the tradition and wash your feet while you were there. Uh, I did. Yeah, I didn't write at the start. Um, I didn't wash it in the disabled mm-hmm. toilet. Uh, I had a, it's it's the summer holidays here, so I've, I've had a bit of time off work so as well. So quite flexible. It's been a little bit is that, easier. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> Fairly flexible. Yeah, yoga. <laughs> get it up into the sink. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. I get it up from over my head. <laughs> I'm a hit with the ladies. <laughs> Do you hear that, ladies? Religious tea. <laughs> Extra good at getting a foot up above the bidet. Yeah, I remember we tried this last time. <laughs> Well, hang on. Um, okay, I've got a question. You've got it. You've got the prayer room, and you're paranoid yeah. about your colleagues seeing you go for a prayer. But if, yeah. if it's such a, a cultural melting pot, surely there would be other Muslims there going to pray five times a day. Couldn't you just integrate? Of course, and um, that's that's the odd thing. No one would bat an eyelid. In fact, when I went to the mosque and um, for the first time, and I, I didn't know everyone would go so well dressed. So there's, I was the only white young in skinny jeans and a hoodie. <laughs> there and everyone else is it and no one no one looked no one once mentioned i mean when i went to the christian church they knew me instantly as being an outsider 
<laughs> straight away. So they, they really didn't just ban Nyland. Broke past them a few times as well, and um, went went a few times for prayer. And uh, oh wait, there was one. There was one kid actually. Once the first time I went, it was literally of the older generation. And but the the like the second or third or fourth time I went, uh, there was there was someone about my age who had the kind of the dress on, and it was it was made by Adidas. And I thought that was wonderful. And he looked so pleased with himself. He got the most, oh, just the most hip, trendy, <laughs> religious dress I've ever seen. Did it have the stripes going up the yeah, side? Yeah, it was the three stripes down it. And I so thought, you can pray faster. Is that, is that where we're headed with this? Maybe. Possibly. <laughs> you, know, you can get, get in and out, pray five times a day and half the time. <laughs> okay, so what's the craziest thing you encountered apart from people trying to give you books? I think the oddest thing I had throughout the whole month, and it's kind of sad as well, is every single person I spoke to, and I wanted to speak about what their faith meant to them, and I, I was really honest, I mean, I wasn't fooling anyone saying I was I was a genuine Muslim and, uh, or anything like that, that no one was being fooled about. I mean, I had the big beard at the time, but it wasn't. It yeah, wasn't. You weren't wearing Adidas. You, no. you weren't sort of anyone. <laughs> Spotted a mile off. <laughs> um, the oddest thing, quite sad, was every single person who spoke to me wanted to make it clear that Islam isn't a religion of hacking people's heads off and flying planes into buildings and stuff like that. And it's, it, it's trying to separate this kind of political um, side of it to, um, from the personal religion. So you spoke to a lot of people. Side of it. It's really sad. Quite a few, yeah. And it's, this, um, this isn't a small sample size. It's, no, it's not. It's, it's <laughs> one of the chaps said he, was, he works in opticians, uh, and he said that mainly the people who need glasses, um, other than myself, the older, the, those who have used their eyes for, for many years, and they're, they're starting to wear out now. And uh, he, um, he said that every single person above the age of 50 or 60 will genuinely stop and take a deep breath. I mean, he's there. I think that's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. He's, he was such a nice chap and that uh, he would genuinely frighten old people just from being a little bit darker than, than <laughs> the colour chart egg white. <laughs> so upsetting. With the English tan. And, yeah. And his added ass lab coat. But. <laughs> Okay, so how many of these people told you? And look, this must have, it must be no surprise to have this question asked to you. People would have asked you, or would have stated to you all the time, Islam means peace. Yeah, every single person. I got, I got, um, I went to one mosque and it took me a couple of days to try and get there and I was trying to talk to someone, trying to speak to the imam. This was quite early on in the month and they kept telling me to come back the next day because there'd be someone there. And I got there one day and there was no one there other than a guy in a taxi just saying, just shouting across a car park to go in there. Can I help you at all? I said, I'm just looking for, they said the secretary will be here or the, the imam or something like that. And he goes, no one comes here anymore, mate. And he told me about the, the bigger mosque, the main one in the centre. Uh, I should have researched better and gone to the big one at the start, but this was on my this was on my way, um, way to work, so <laughs> it's better. Um, and he he offered me a, a lift to the to the other mosque, and he was telling me straight away he was asking what I was doing, and I told him I'm writing this book, and he said I can't tell you what to write, but I would ask that you write about Islam being a peace and how it's not this. I mean, straight away we went. It was we were in the taxi for five minutes, but out of all the things he wanted to tell me. That was that was what was most important to him. Don't know if you know in Britain about two months ago, possibly a soldier by the name of Lee Rigby was murdered on the street. Yeah, he wasn't murdered by somebody who was traditionally Islamic, was he? It was it was political. It was it was all political. I have been told that Islam isn't just a faith or a religion. It is also it, it is an ideology. It's a, a political a, a way of running a society. Tell me more about the accused. Uh, the the two people who took Lee Rigby's head off. Well, not much has been said since. Uh, it's by by the videos I've seen. Uh, their reason for attacking was it was a retaliation to forces in um, Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm sure they've said a few times that it was Allah who gave them the courage to do it. 
Uh, and that's that's the problem. It's it's kind of the political side and the faith side are so intermingled. The edges are blurred so much that it's it's almost hard for anyone on the outside to differentiate between the two. And that's when you get that's when you get old women scared of opti- uh, the opticians. How do you differentiate between what Alice says to different people? Is it possible that he might be telling them different things? I don't think it is possible. I think that's where all this media hatred towards towards the Middle East and and the Islamic faith have come from. It's so difficult. How do you tell one person? I've read the Quran and it is full of just violence and bloodshed and not towards other, not towards other religions, not towards Christians or anything like that. Towards non-believers, it's remove their heads immediately. And it's it's hard, I imagine, being a Muslim and saying to someone it is peaceful, and then for someone to read the Quran and go, it's 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 not, mate. It's really not. <laughs> but pe- mm. people are as peaceful as they are. I, I don't think that we're allowed to swear on this, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard um, I heard Ra on this a couple of weeks ago. So I know I know it's okay. Oh yeah, but no, she exceeded the quota for the subsequent <laughs> six guests. So thanks, Ra. <laughs> um, Go on, do what you need to do. My favourite thing ever said on this kind of subject was by by a friend of mine who just said, literally, there are cunts everywhere. It's it doesn't matter if you're Islam or you're a Christian and stuff like that. If you're going to be a cunt, you're going to be a cunt anyway. You neglected a large portion of the audience here. The atheists can also be cunts. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Sorry about and, that. And what's the typical example given by the theist? We're talking Hitler then, are we? Uh, well, Hitler was a Roman Catholic. Well, I know, uh, I know this. <laughs> you <laughs> know that, but we're this. talking Pol. We're talking Pol Pot. We're talking Stalin. We're talking, you know, you, know you, you usuals. But the point is, you can be an, a right tool regardless of your religion. Exactly. Absolutely. So the, the differentiation between the, the the peaceful Muslims, which are, of course, the huge majority, and the dickheads that. Exactly. Ruin it for everything are simply, they were dickheads probably to start with. So what's your overall 25 words or less finishing statement, Your Honour? It's, it's a very difficult religion to follow. <laughs> it's really tricky. It's, it's almost a full-time job, uh, to be a Muslim. <laughs> and they deserve our respect for that. <laughs> One question that I'm sure, if, if I don't ask, and I'm gonna have a, a thousand people pummel me for not asking the question. What about sexism? Did you encounter it? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I did. And, um, as the terrible journalist that I am, it took me a while to notice. I went to the mosque and stuff like that for, for the first few times. I was, I joined in the prayer. I was so, so aware of trying to get all the, the dance moves right, of the going down to the floor and getting back. <laughs> you weren't practicing on the Nintendo Wii. <laughs> I knew the Macarena. Before I was hoping hand. we were doing that. <laughs> they switched at the last minute. <laughs> I was so, so in the zone of getting that right and, you know, trying to, trying to show off to everyone else. You know, I know the moves. I know what I'm doing. And that I didn't realize until, um, I was talking to a friend who's, who's a, a Muslim and, uh, we were talking about getting me into, um, breakfast with everyone and stuff like that. And, uh, I was saying, what time, uh, what time do you want to meet before we go? And uh, she said, well, obviously I won't be going to the mosque to break the fast. And I thought, of course. And I've, I've, I didn't see a single female at the mosque at all. They're asked to stay at home. And that's as bad as it gets, I think, really, that they're not allowed to join in the religion like any man should be able to. I think it was the, um, the kind of nonchalant and how she said, it as well it was um of course i won't be joining you at the mosque it wasn't there wasn't any heartache or anything like that and it was just this is how it is and that they've got people conditioned to separate gender like that is really quickly what are the flaws in islam I, i'd say the fact that it's a political ideology the, the problem it's going to have and um, it's probably the reason things like buddhism and hinduism have survived so long it's a philosophy rather than rule so it's it's able to adapt it's able to move with other cultures and survive the problem Islam's going to have is as soon as everyone decides that they're not the rules they want to live by, it's it's finished. It's done. And what what are the benefits? What did you experience out of it that you actually enjoyed? 
Silence. <laughs> God, what did I enjoy? Um, nope, not a thing. <laughs> All right, do you mind if I keep that in the show? <laughs> keep it. It was awful. Oh, <laughs> so, awful. in terms of re- okay, just list off the religions you've done so far. I've done Christianity, Hinduism, Scientology. And Islam. And next, I'm a wicker. Okay. Well, look, we won't delve too much into that, but out of the four you've done so far, this is probably the least pleasant? Yes, it, it certainly is. I don't know if it's, I did it during Ramadan, which takes up almost all your time just thinking about not wanting to eat and drink. So how much I delved into it. I mean, I, I think I did the main, the main bits, the main parts of what it is to be, uh, of being Muslim and, each one is is mm. horrible, uh, so definitely the least pleasant so far. Well, I can assure definitely. you that the four people who listen to this show are right behind you. We're very proud of you. Uh, we think you've <laughs> Thank achieved you greatness, and you've enlightened us. Oh, I hope so. I've enlightened myself, Absolutely. and that's the main thing. As long as I'm enlightened. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you once again for coming on the Herd Mentality Podcast. Bonus material, absolutely free, cost you nothing. We have at Religious Tea, who is the religious tourist going from one religion to another seamlessly. So thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you Good. for having me again.